Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. In today's case, we investigate two separate crimes in two different places under seemingly unrelated circumstances. What does a small town bank robbery in Port Credit and a big city gangland murder in the heart of Toronto have in common? The lowest common denominator, a lone figure poised to ascend the ladder to the top of Toronto's criminal underworld. Let us introduce you, dear listener, to Mickey McDonald, the Mad Dog of Jarvis Street. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Episode 11, The Public Enemy Part 1, The Port Credit Holdup. Friday, December 9, 1938, Village of Port Credit. The green delivery truck, with loudspeakers perched proudly on top, touted Stana's radio of Long Branch to every passerby as it rumbled down Lakeshore Road. At the corner of Stave Bank Road, it pulled to a stop outside the Port Credit branch of the Canadian Bank of Commerce. John Roderick Shea, an employee of Stana's, was at the wheel, but he wasn't there to deliver radios. Along for the ride were Leo Gautier and Alex McDonald. The trio was identically attired in overalls, work shirts, and caps, like the three stooges off to paint a fence. They nodded to each other, real businesslike, pulled their caps down close to their eyes, and checked their guns. It was time to go to work. MacDonald opened the passenger door and slid out onto the sidewalk. He ambled nonchalantly up to the steps of the bank's doors and waited there on lookout while Shea drove the truck around the block and stowed it on Stave Bank Road South, across the street from the bank. Gautier took another generous hit of scotch from the bottle Shea had brought along. The two men exited the truck and crossed Lakeshore Road to join MacDonald outside the bank. If Gautier wasn't drunk, he was almost there. Even in the crisp air of early winter, the short trip across the street had coaxed a thin film of sweat from his brow, and he was already breathing hard. Let's go, Shea said, and the three entered the bank. Inside, the employees were about to close up shop for the day, and the bank was almost free of customers. While Gautier and MacDonald hung back, Shea stepped up to the teller window and coolly asked to change a sawbuck. The teller, Norman Thacker, nodded courteously and moved to open the cash drawer. Shea fingered the revolver in his pocket, searching for the right moment to pull it out. And how would you like your change, sir? Thacker asked, looking up. At that moment, the two men locked eyes, and Shea knew, deep down, that this was it. All right, this is a stick-up, Shea said coolly, and drew his nickel-plated revolver. The teller's hand shot up. Nobody move, this is a stick-up, MacDonald shouted behind him, freezing all other action in the bank. Young and green as he was, MacDonald took cues well. He and Gautier drew their guns and lifted their gloved hands up to cover their faces. Shea was impressed with young MacDonald's facile improvisation 
and his ability to turn violence on like a faucet. He was a last-minute replacement, after all, and it was his first bank job to boot. Must run in the family, was Shay's thought in that moment. Shay moved quickly to the bank accountant's desk, just off the teller windows. Ray Bryant was behind it. You're going to open the vault, Shay told him. Bryant glared at the bandit, but he nodded all the same. That's it, Shay said soothingly. Just do what we say and nobody gets hurt. Behind him came the ironic report from a gun. Shea swiveled to see a wisp of powder smoke coming from Gautier's revolver. Bryant grabbed his arm and let out a scream of pain. Blood sprayed out from between his fingers and onto the crisp white pages of the ledger book spread open on Bryant's desk. A crimson stain began moving quickly across the sleeve of his suit jacket. He was moving too slow, Gautier slurred, giving a shrug. Shea sighed. The brakes had been let go, and this trolley was starting its roll down a steep hill. All he could do was roll along with it. Everybody to the back! Move! he screamed. He even threw in some of his choicest cuss words to put a fine point on the command. The shock and awe tactics worked a treat, and the employees were herded quickly into the bank manager's office and made to lie on the floor. Shea shoved his gun into Brian's face and demanded once again that he open the vault. Still bleeding, Brian stammered that he only had half the combo. Do you want a bullet through your head? was Shay's retort. Brian had to admit to himself, and then to the bandit, that he did not. He was allowed to get Norman Thacker, and the two men set about opening the safe. As they fumbled with the tumblers, a young woman, Hilda Blower, entered the bank from the street, hurriedly rifling through her handbag for a deposit envelope. She dug it out with a triumphant grin and looked up to see which teller window was open. The teller wasn't in the window, but he'd know to expect her weekly deposit from the W.H. Thomas Lumber Company, where she worked as a secretary. As she was in a hurry, she slid the envelope just inside the teller window and turned to leave. Stop right there, Gautier snapped, coming out of the manager's office. The woman halted and turned to appraise the tableau inside, Three men with revolvers drawn, bank employees lying prone on the ground, and a man bleeding from the arm. She let out a whimper. Gautier motioned for her to join the bank employees on the floor. From outside, the insistent blare of a car horn sounded and echoed through the bank. Gautier went to the window and peered out onto Lakeshore Road. It's some jerk in a truck, he said nervously. He's just sitting there. The man in the truck leaned on the horn, letting out two more insouciant get-a-move-on blows. Take care of it, Shea shouted to Gautier. When he didn't move, Shea shouted louder, Get out there! Gautier shook his head and looked sick. The hell I will! Go out and get him yourself! Shea rushed over, grabbed Gautier by the collar, and dragged him outside. The two almost stumbled down the steps to the street. A delivery truck from McKee's Grocers was stopped at the curb with the motor running. The driver, Ray Blower, was drumming his fingers on the wheel and staring testily out into the middle distance. Gautier hugged the wall of the bank like it was on a cliff's edge and nervously shot his gaze up and down the street. Shea crossed the sidewalk to the truck and yanked the passenger door open. Geez, sis, the man said tartly. You said it was just going to be in and out only to turn and see Shay's revolver in his face. Inside, Shay snarled. The man nodded, raised his hands, and followed Shay into the bank.
he went into the bank manager's office and lay down on his stomach next to Hilda. You said it was going to be in and out, he whispered, and she shushed him down. Hurry it up, Shay yelled to the men opening the vault. The two men gave each other a look of resignation and nodded. They dragged their feet, entering in the safe's combination, but they did not want to test the patience of the bandits any more. Bryant, holding his limp arm and visibly shaking, stepped away from the door and Thacker began to spin the safe's five-spoke handle. Inside the thick steel door, they could hear metal bolts sliding open. The teller pulled on the handle with a jerk, and the heavy steel door slowly swung out, revealing a room of polished steel with drawers from floor to ceiling. An inner locked door barred the entrance. Keys, Shay demanded, with a juvenile gimme-gimme gesture. Bryant nodded weakly and handed over his key ring. With Gautier covering the employees, Shay tried keys until he found the one that unlocked the inner door. He kicked it, and it swung into the vault with a sharp squeal and slammed against the inside wall. Shay and MacDonald rushed inside and began ransacking drawers and safety deposit boxes at random. Come on, come on, Gautier called at them nervously from the manager's office, where he was watching a gaggle of onlookers gather outside the bank as word of a robbery in progress filtered through the small village. Inside the vault, Shay and MacDonald grabbed any cash they could, netting $2,700 in total. But in their haste, they missed a bounty of $4,000 in one unchecked drawer. The thieves' thin disguises let them down when the physical task of holding stolen money necessitated the use of not just one, but two hands, and the bank employees were able to get a good look at them on their way out of the bank. The thieves pushed through the crowd of onlookers and dashed across the street. They piled back into the Stan radio truck and peeled out of poor credit. Shay made his way north to the middle road and pointed the truck east back towards Toronto. MacDonald, clutching the bag of money, leaned back in his seat and closed his eyes, savoring the adrenaline thrill of his first bank heist. Gautier reached for the scotch bottle and proceeded to polish off the remaining contents. These keystone criminals had plotted their caper less than 24 hours ago, and the Stumblebums had executed it with all the grace and precision of W.C. Fields dancing Swan Lake. They would learn that committing the crime was the easy part. The hard part was getting away with it. Three days later, Gautier and MacDonald were collared by the cops. Shay went to ground and managed to dodge the dragnet for another two months until he too was picked up. But here, dear listeners, is where we take temporary leave of these unpolished pilferers. Their ham-fisted heist was mere prologue to a grander criminal tale, and so we turn our spotlight to another part of the city and another of its criminal denizens, Donald Mickey MacDonald. Faithful listeners will recognize the mixture as a familiar name to these stories of crime. This gangster had been a gangrene on society since the late 1920s, he palled around with the notorious Campbell brothers, Melville and Oscar, whose copious capering throughout Canada and the United States helped make the 30s dirty. Mickey was a background player in those tales. Here, he is the star. Born Donald Michael MacDonald in Scotland, 
he and his parents immigrated to Canada in 1914. Over the years, whether to dodge demerits or in disdain of his homeland, Donald MacDonald rechristened himself Mickey McDonald. Mickey's criminal ways were forged in the crucible of poverty and strife in Toronto's East End. His rough-and-tumble neighborhood, known as The Corner, ran along Dundas Street, bordered by Church Street on the west and Jarvis Street on the east. It was ground zero for a miscellany of malfeasance in the early 20th century. In his teens, Mickey fell in with a fast crowd of gamblers and thieves who made their headquarters at none other than the Chicory Inn in Clarkson. That hopping house of hedonism awoke in Mickey a thirst for criminality he would carry with him his entire life. Mickey was a man of many thirsts, women, booze, drugs, and gambling. His most voracious vice, however, was violence. Mickey was a real wolf when it came to women, but his main squeeze was a kitten, Margaret Kitty Cat MacDonald. The two met cute in 1930 when Mickey barged into the kitchen of her parents' tenement uninvited. She was peeling potatoes. He was on the run from the cops after they broke up an illegal craps game he was chucking dice in. Sixteen-year-old Margaret was thrilled by the dashing entrance of this rakish rogue with his boyish movie star good looks, her very own Lou Ayres, right there in her kitchen. He was, at the very least, more exciting than peeling potatoes. Kitty Cat left her parents' home and moved in with Mickey. She became the couple's breadwinner, supporting Mickey's drinking and gambling habits on her back. For his part, Mickey slept around and used Kitty Cat as a punching bag at the slightest provocation. A pension for spontaneous unhinged violence was just the ticket to punch for a young up-and-coming criminal to get ahead in the underworld. Mickey was able to gather a gang of like-minded criminals into his orbit, and this merry band of malefactor set out to carve a healthy slice of Toronto's illicit economy for themselves. In spite of his own self-destructive tendencies, Mickey and his gang managed to burgle, bootleg, make book, and pimp their way into the highest, or lowest, depending on your moral orientation, echelons of the city's underworld. With the dough rolling in, Kitty Cat, who'd stuck it through the lean years with Mickey, was able to trade in the rough trade for Ermine and Mink. Toronto's first couple of crime was on top of the world. After years of living in sin, on December 15, 1935, Kitty Cat made an honest man out of Mickey, at least where his marital status was concerned. Tellingly, their marriage certificate listed both their addresses as 610 Ontario Street in Toronto. The ceremony was presided over by J.W. Parks and witnessed by Leo Gautier and Mickey's sister Margaret. Mickey had finally made good on his promise of a wedding as Kitty's Christmas present. But don't be fooled that he was the romantic type. It was just easier than buying her a present. Faithful listeners may recall the incident in 1938, when, in a signature spasm of spontaneous violence, Mickey tore a telephone from the wall of Trotter's lunch stand and brought it down on the head of the restaurant's manager. It got him sent to Kingston Penitentiary. Late in 38, a gangland war began busting out all over Toronto. Rival bootlegging gangs went toe-to-toe -to -toe for a bigger slice of the Hogtown hooch racket, 
For three hot weeks, it was full tilt tit-for-tat, with violent dust-ups between rival gangs. A modicum of malefactor is par for the course in any big city, but in 1938, a gang war was smoldering in the corner. Benched behind bars, Mickey would sit out the early stages of the war, but he was about to be released, and with his team's MVP, that's most violent person, back on the streets, he and his gang would be the kindling, the accelerant, and the fuel to the fire. The war would lead to the first gangland murder in Toronto history. October 5th, 1938. While Mickey was waiting out his latest stint in Kingston Pen, Kitty Cat was shacked up in a Church Street apartment with another bootlegger named Charlie Dorland. The enterprising pair played house, but they also ran a speakeasy come cat house out of the love nest. That evening, Kitty Cat was hosting a boozy shindig when Dorland was called away by a mysterious phone call. Minutes after Dorland's exit, the party was crashed by a few uninvited guests. Among them was John Coolinan, who operated a rival blind pig down the street, Millie Dinwoodie, a longtime grifter and new mother, Vern Epter, who would eventually graduate from lowly bootlegger to drug kingpin selling smack out of his Toronto shoeshine parlor in the 1950s, and John the Bug Brown, an extremely volatile ex-convict turned bootlegger whose penchant for violence rivaled that of Mickey himself. The rowdy gatecrashers raised a ruckus that resulted in Kitty Cat getting a sock in the kisser from the bug and her sofa getting smashed to bits. Parts of the sofa were forcibly rammed down the mouth of partygoer Norma Neary. Police were called and arrived to break up the fracas. All manner of sore, Kitty Cat went to the police to out everyone who'd torn up her place, in particular John the Bug Brown. The problem was that the bug had copious criminal connections from up on high. He was a close personal friend of crime kingpin Rocco Perry of Hamilton. Mickey, who had been MIA during the sofa-smashing scene, returned home just in time to smooth things over with Brown. His proposed form of reconciliation? Banding together to rob the Church Street apartment of William Lefty Thomas, one of Toronto's biggest bookmakers and bootleggers, who took bets through an intricate network of newsstands across the city. Kitty played getaway driver while the hardened heavies forced their way into the apartment. Lefty was absent, but they found his lieutenant, James C. Elder, and were happy enough to rough him up with homemade blackjack. They then proceeded to steal big and steal little, absconding with four cases of beer, seven cases of whiskey, one bottle of gin, two dollars in cash, and Elder's overcoat before hastily making their exit. Six days later, Mickey and friends were arrested and faced another extended stay in Kingston. The gang war continued into December, with no less than 32 robberies of bookies and bootleggers recorded in Toronto. This culminated in the shocking murder of James Windsor, a 46-year-old Toronto bookie and dancehall owner, in his Lawrence Park South house. Jimmy was making Boku bucks in the bookmaking biz, and it showed in his fastidious fashions. The dapper Dan was living the high life, flashing rolls of cash large enough to choke a horse. His signature flair was a diamond-encrusted white gold ring. Jimmy operated Windsor's Barbecue Uptown and the White Spot Restaurant Downtown. The former was a popular barbecue restaurant and dance hall in Lansing, 
a rough-and-tumble ten cents a dance joint, but strictly on the level. The latter was a front for his thriving bookmaking business. The wily Windsor was a whiz at the delicate soft shoe that allowed an enterprising entrepreneur like himself to dance in the ephemeral twilight between legitimacy and illegitimacy, legality and illegality. He knew just who to appease and who to push, and it served him well. Employing anonymous runners, nothing could ever be traced back to him, and he had the squeaky-clean record to prove it. On Saturday, January 7, 1939, Jimmy was gathered at the kitchen table for a steak dinner in his Briar Hill Avenue house with his family. In attendance were his two married sisters, Evelyn McDermott and Edith Warner, and their spouses, Evelyn's three-month-old baby and Jimmy's 18-year-old girlfriend, Lorraine Brommel. With the dinner polished off and the T-bones picked clean, Windsor lit a cigarette for dessert. As he puffed away, he closed his eyes and pushed thoughts of business to the back of his mind. He was the unblinking head of an octopus-like bookmaking network, with tentacles reaching into cigar stores, barbershops, and factories all over the city. Keeping that machine running all the live-long day took a lot out of a man. These moments of quiet respite were few and far between. Your working stiff looking to lay down a fin on Papa's mustache in the third may not know the name of Jimmy Windsor, but his business was an open secret all around town. His reputation for being straight with his clients in a crooked business was the secret to his success. That's what the competition simply didn't understand. Paying out on a losing bet was spending money to make money. Dough coming in, dough going out. Money changed hands all the time. At the end of the day, your reputation was all you had. Jimmy was honest, but he was no pushover. A group of thugs had paid a call to the barbecue, demanding a weekly payout for protection. Perhaps, he wondered, that he'd made a mistake telling those lowlifes to take a hike. But probably not. Jimmy Windsor didn't bow to bullies. Yes, in this business, your reputation was all that you had. Outside on Briar Hill, the sleek form of a Ford Cabriolet pulled to a stop in front of the house. Four Toms exited the car and trudged up the snowy walkway to Jimmy's doorstep. In the kitchen, the party heard a loud knock at the door. Evelyn looked over to Jimmy. He had his head in the clouds again. She passed her baby to her sister and went to answer the door. When she opened it, she found a man in a gray fedora standing on the porch. He flashed his teeth. Is Jimmy in? He's just finishing his supper. Evelyn replied, but before she could finish, Mr. Gray Fedora pressed a white handkerchief over his mouth and pushed his way into the house. Three more of his masked pals followed close behind. The man spun Evelyn around and pressed the barrel of a black revolver to her back. A firm push from the muzzle nudged her forward, and she led the crew down the hallway to the kitchen, where Jimmy was still sitting at the dinner table. Come on out to the car, Jimmy, said the first man. We want to talk to you. Two of the goons flanked him and flashed their rods, making the statement more of an order than a request. Another man in a brown overcoat kept watch outside in the hall. Windsor looked blankly at his uninvited guests. If he had any idea who the intruders were, he didn't let on. What's this all about, he asked. 
The first man stepped right in front of where Jimmy was sitting and waved the revolver in his face menacingly. Come out to the car, Windsor. Jimmy pushed back his chair. All right, he said coolly. His voice held a note of irritation, the sort you afford a circling mosquito. You don't have to get tough about it, he said. Maybe it was Windsor's dismissive tone, smarting to a lesser man. Maybe it was the Gunsel's knowledge that Jimmy was good with his fists. Whatever the reason, this reply did not sit well with the Gunsel. He reddened as anger began welling up under the man's gray fedora. If this were a cartoon, steam would surely have been shooting out his ears. Suddenly, he blew his top. God damn you, Windsor, he snarled. Then there came a sound like a pop as the gun went off in the man's hands, right in front of Windsor's navel. The bullet tunneled downwards through Jimmy's stomach into his leg, tearing through an artery before lodging itself in the kitchen floor. Chaos erupted in the tiny kitchen. In what might have been mistaken for rehearsed unison, the women began to scream. The men at the table jumped to their feet, throwing their chairs backwards. Clutched in Edith's arms, the three-month-old baby understanding nothing but its own unease, began to wail. Jimmy, swinging and swaying, staggered away from the table. "'Get me a doctor, quick!' he grunted. "'Call a doctor!' Evelyn cried, above the screams of the baby. "'Don't let him die!' Out in the hall, the man in the brown overcoat grabbed the telephone and tore it away from the wall, wires and all. The heavy instrument fell to the ground with a ringing thud. Another of the men, the tallest of the four, with pretty blue eyes, as the eyewitnesses would later describe, stared down at the family. Keep quiet, or you'll get the same, he said evenly. The shooter, still in a rage, grabbed Windsor roughly by the lapel of his pinstripe suit, and half-led, half-dragged him beyond the kitchen threshold. Jimmy slumped down against the door to the cellar. His legs would take him no further. Where's the bag? demanded the gunsel, still clutching Jimmy's jacket. When the dying man didn't offer up a response, he shouted it again and again, each new question punctuated with a kick to the ribs or the face. Please, please stop, pleaded young Lorraine, unable to stomach the brutal violence being exacted on her bow. I can get the bag. Where is it? shouted the gunsel. When the answer didn't come fast enough, he wheeled around and backhanded Lorraine across the face. He grabbed her and shoved her back into the kitchen. Search him, barked the gunsel, jerking his thumb at Jimmy. The man in a green fedora and the man from the hall in a brown overcoat rushed forward to go over the body. They pulled from him around $40 in cash, a gold tie pin, and Windsor's signature gold ring. The hall was worth about three grand, but there was still no bag of cash in sight. Angry, the killer resumed kicking Jimmy, as if the secret might finally spill out. Come on, let's go, whined the man in the brown coat nervously, tugging at the gunsel's coat. Let's get out of here. Three of the assailants gave up the search for the cached cash and headed out to the waiting car. The blue-eyed man hung back and looked at the stunned family. All right, he said, gathering their attention. Upstairs. One by one, he marched them from the kitchen, forcing them to step over the motionless body of Jimmy Windsor. They were herded into a bedroom in the back of the house. Once they were gathered inside, the man waved his pistol at each of them as a final warning. Not a word to the cops or you'll be next. He then dashed out of the house and leapt into the waiting cabriolet.
The driver floored it, and the killer sped off into the night. In 1939, Toronto the Good was seen by some as a backwater of staunch conservatism and moral policing. Crime, to that point, was nearly non-existent, except for small pockets of vice, namely bootlegging, bookmaking, and prostitution. Such victimless crimes were allowed to coexist with the morally upstanding as long as they stayed small-time and kept to impoverished neighborhoods like the corner, well away from the citizenry of the rest of the city. Jimmy Windsor was the criminal kind to operate within those narrow bounds. With a single gunshot, however, his murderers had blown a gaping hole in those boundaries, and the city would never be the same. Toronto had had its share of sensational murders in the past, but public reaction to the killing of Jimmy Windsor was particularly piqued. The Monday morning edition of the Toronto Daily Star screamed the headline, Gangland Gun Crew Kills Toronto Bookie as Family Looks On. The headline laid bare the fears the murder of Jimmy Windsor stirred in the hearts of Torontonians. To the upright citizen, the curtain had been pulled back to reveal the shadow world that had always existed side by side with theirs. The killing was a deliberate act carried out, not in the shroud of the city's dark corners, but in a respectable neighborhood, inside the victim's own home, and in full view of his family. Jimmy Windsor may have had one foot in the Toronto underworld, but the fear remained, if it could happen to Jimmy Windsor, it could happen to anybody. What's more, as the shocking details splashed across the front page of every newspaper in town, Torontonians began to whisper another unspoken fear. American-style organized crime had finally arrived in Canada. Police response to the killing was swift and merciless. Before the sun had risen on Jimmy Windsor's murder, Toronto police detectives were raiding gambling houses throughout the city and rousting known gang members from their beds. Windsor's connection to the city's booming bookmaking racket was the best lead they had. Had Jimmy Windsor been the inevitable, violent conclusion to the simmering gang war? On an anonymous tip, Toronto police raided a high-volume bookmaking clearing house in Swansea, where bets came in from five separate gambling houses throughout the Toronto area. The operation was run out of an apartment above a drugstore. Seven men took calls, checking odds and recording bets onto notepads. A woman was stationed at an adding machine, tasked with keeping the books on the bookmaking concern. Police kicked down the door to find a small apartment, kitted out with 20 telephones spread out across two conference tables. The phones had their bells replaced with visual signals when a bet came in. The raid netted police $20,000 in betting slips and eight arrests, but no clues about Windsor's killers. Just days before, business would have hummed along without any interference from the police, but that was before the murder of James Windsor. Another lead pursued by police was a shakedown that had been attempted on Jimmy's barbecue joint. Three men had threatened to blow up the barbecue if Jimmy didn't cough up $25 a week in protection money. Jimmy had chased them off. Had the racketeers sought retribution for the rebuke? With leads drying up, police were ready to use all the tools in their toolbox, both legal and extra-legal, to find the murder of James Windsor and restore balance to the fair city of Toronto. 
They were shaking the trees, hoping that the clue to crack the Windsor murder case would fall into their laps. And in a way, it did. And so, we return to the beginning of our tale, and the bumbling trio of thieves who knocked over the poor credit branch of the Canadian Bank of Commerce. On December 8th, the night before the Port Credit Bank job, Mickey McDonald, John R. Shea, and Leo Gautier huddled in a tavern over a few stiff drinks. They meticulously went over the details of their plan. Port Credit was a very distant 15 miles away from Toronto, far enough away to be considered a country vacation spot in 1938. The county constabulary would never look as far as Toronto for the gang. They had as good as gotten away with it already. Bullets ready, guns loaded, getaway prepared, the crew was ready, set, and raring to go. On the morning of the robbery, however, when they most needed the violent talents of Mickey the bloodthirsty gangster, his compatriots instead found Mickey the self-destructive stumblebum. He was stinko from the bombastic bender he'd embarked upon the night before and couldn't even roll out of bed, let alone rob a bank. Mickey's 18-year-old brother, Alex, became a last-minute substitute. Even before they'd stepped a single foot inside the Bank of Commerce, the plan had already begun its steady downhill path to abject failure. The robbery's unexpected consequences for the Jimmy Windsor murder, however, would play out over the next year. Just days after the botched business at the bank, the police caught up with Alex McDonald and Leo Gautier. The former was a crime novice, literally pulled away from the McDonald family lunch stand as a substitute for his brother Mickey. The latter was a loose-lipped drunk. Only the mo of this bunch of stooges, John Shea, had the wherewithal to avoid capture. After dropping off Gautier and McDonald back in Toronto, Shea drove the Stana radio truck back to his rooming house at 29th Street in Long Branch. His landlady told him the cops had already been there, sniffing around for him. He turned tail and ran. Shea slunk around the corner for a few days until he took up a new address at 209 Ossington Avenue under a false name to lie low until the heat died down. In spite of his efforts to remain underground, Shea too would be captured in late January of 1939. Had he stopped for a minute to think about how the police were in possession of such prescient knowledge of the thieves' comings and goings, he might have looked inwardly at his own inner circle and the wolf in sheep's clothing that crept within. This wolf, however, did not have the bedraggled form of a woodland predator. She cut an entirely more well-coiffed and shapely silhouette. And her name was Marjorie Constable. Faithful listeners will be familiar with that flame-haired firebrand from the violent tale of the Campbell brothers and the shooting at the Chicory Inn. Once dubiously dubbed the robber gang queen, Marjorie was a mole whose relationships with some of Toronto's rogues gallery were more than platonic. But as Margie rubbed shoulders, among other body parts, with some of Toronto's finest gangsters, unbeknownst to them, she was playing a crooked game of her own. Marge would cozy up to a crook and then secretly sell them out to the cops, usually as soon as any whiff of reward money wafted her way. In a world of hustlers and hoods, filled with cunning men who were looking for any angle to play, Marge may have been the most cunning of all. She was hustling the hustlers and hoodwinking the hoods. At the time of the Port Credit bank robbery, 
Marge was playing house with Leo Gautier, one of the three thieves. Whether or not Gautier was truly the apple of Marjorie's eye, we don't know, but she certainly didn't love him more than the $5,000 reward for the information leading to arrests for any bank robbery, past, present, and future. While the robbers three were hightailing back to Toronto in the Stana radio truck, Marge was already putting Bell's invention to good use, making a telephone call to Provincial Police Constable Alex Wilson. Another of our returning cast of characters from the 1930s, P.C. Wilson, architect of the acquittal of Melville Campbell for the Wyerton Warehouse robbery and his turning stoolie, was a sympathetic ear to underworld informants looking to turn some sinful scuttlebutt into some quick cash. With the guileless Gautier feeding her information about the poor credit robbery, Marge had the goods and delivered them gift-wrapped to P.C. Wilson. Within hours of the robbery, the cops arrested Alex MacDonald and Leo Gautier for the poor credit job. Shea, on the other hand, was safely holed up in his Ossington safe house, wisely deciding to keep his whereabouts strictly need-to-know. Too bad for him, the one man who knew where to find him was Mickey MacDonald. If Marjorie Constable had a hard time controlling her impulse to sell out her boyfriends for cash, Mickey MacDonald made no effort to control any impulses at all. To Shea's secret hideout, he invited all kinds of gangland bookies, bootleggers, and burglars to the point where the words secret hideout held no meaning at all. When Shea complained that his whereabouts had become where exactly in the Toronto underworld, Mickey brushed him off, saying the guys were too drunk to remember anything anyway. It didn't take long for Mickey to invite Leo Gautier, out on bail, to join the party. Naturally, word of Shay's location passed from Gautier to Marjorie Constable to PC Alex Wilson to Toronto police detectives. On January 21, 1939, John Shea woke up in his bed surrounded by police. He had been double-crossed, and to him, only Mickey could be to blame. John Roderick Shea hadn't been the mastermind of the poor credit heist for nil. He'd gone to McGill University and had claimed to have a fancy job in finance before being wiped out in the big crash of 29. After that, he'd reinvented himself into a professional thief and confidence man. He also claimed he was palling around with Mickey since December 1928. If you believe nothing else, believe that John R. Shea was an expert at editing his own autobiography. Handcuffed in back of a police car, the gears began to turn. He concocted a plan that would buy him immunity from prosecution for the poor credit bank heist, and would also get some payback from Mickey McDonald, his dunderheaded betrayer. All he needed to do was the one thing you didn't do in the criminal underworld. Shay's plan? Finger Mickey and Alex McDonald for the Windsor slaying, cut a deal with the Crown Prosecutor, and walk away a free man. Turning stoolie against gangland was a gamble you bet your life on, and Mickey wasn't just a criminal acquaintance, he was a close friend. If Shay made a deal, he might as well have Rat tattooed across his forehead. Not only would Shay's reputation in Toronto be worth a wooden nickel, he'd have to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder. In spite of that, it was a gamble he was willing to make. And make it he did, 
Months later, at the trial of the Port Credit bank robbers, Alex McDonald and Leo Gauthier were sitting at the defense table, and John Arche was a witness for the prosecution. But that is not the only die that was cast at Toronto Police Headquarters on January 21, 1939. Behind closed doors, a secret deal was being agreed upon by two parties that would be mutually beneficial to all involved. The party of the first part was John Arche. The party of the second part was the people of Ontario, as represented by the Crown. The goal? To take down Mickey MacDonald, the mad dog of Toronto's gangland, for the murder of James Windsor. Here, dear listeners, we read between the lines, draw conclusions, and connect the dots. We may not know exactly what was said behind closed doors at police headquarters. Those records are sealed, and will be for more than a decade at least. For all we know, those records will be sealed forever. The decision is the purview of the Information and Privacy Unit of the Archives of Ontario. What we do know is what transpired after Shea's arrest, including, crucially, the actions of no less a figure than Ontario's Attorney General at the time, Gordon Conant. Ponder this. What leverage did police have to turn John R. Shea against Mickey McDonald? The Port Credit bank robbery charge? Yes. Shea certainly had the lowdown, but police had already heard the full story from their number one gal, Marjorie Constable. What more could he spill about the bank robbery in the boonies that would be worth anyone's time? You didn't accuse one of the most violent and unpredictable gangsters in the city of murder to wriggle out of a measly robbery rap. No, it was more likely that Shea had a darker crime he needed struck from his ledger. His presence at 247 Briar Hill Avenue on the night of James Windsor's murder. Coming up, we'll see Mickey in a fight for his life inside a Toronto courtroom, more deceptions from Marjorie Constable, a dramatic prison break, and Mickey's ascension to the very top of Canada's most wanted list. Tune in next time, dear listener for the dramatic conclusion of this epic tale of true crime. The Public Enemy, Part 2. The Life and Crimes of Mickey McDonald. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's Darker Side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. An adaptation of this story by Sue Brattel first appeared in the Heritage News. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listeners, This is Mississauga Confidential, 
signing off.